lot to pride on an accurate testimony. I, I realized this when I was called to testify at an informal hearing against my platoon sergeant. Uh, a guy from my squad had accused him of racial discrimination, and I was one of several witnesses called. This was a huge deal, and a, an accusation like this could ruin a career. So with much hanging in the balance, it was important for my testimony to be, con- to be clear, accurate, and true. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we also are called to testify. We are called to testify about Jesus. Our testimony is incredibly important. People may well make decisions about Jesus that determine their eternity based upon our testimony. So obviously much hangs in the balance. This means our testimony must be clear, it must be accurate, and it must be true. How do we do this? The passage we're going to study today will help us to understand how to give a clear, accurate, and true testimony about Jesus Christ. Go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 1, verse 15. It's where we're starting. It's page 809 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes before me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now this is the testimony of John when when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Betharba, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The title of the message is Testifying About Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we come this morning and we want to know Jesus better. We want to be better able to go out and tell a lost and a dying world about the Christ who has changed us so. Father, we know that Jesus is good news. We know that the gospel is good news. We know that All the world desperately needs to hear and believe upon Jesus. And God, we want to tell the world about Jesus. But Lord, there's times where we're afraid. There's times we don't know what to say or how to do it. So we ask you, God, as we look at John's testimony about Jesus, that we would be equipped and inspired to go out this week 
to look for opportunities and to tell others about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done, why he's significant to our lives. I ask you this morning to fill me with the Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me, Father, to, to be able to make known what you have shown me in this. Help me, God, to, to not be a hindrance in any way, but to do your will. Be glorified in all things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, John the Baptist is a pretty central figure in the early ministry of Jesus. Um, personally, I tend to call him John the Free Will Baptist because I think that's probably more accurate. Um, but John was an important person. John was born with a specific purpose and a specific thing he was supposed to do. We find that purpose really in verse 6 and 7 of John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the life that all through him might believe. Right right in there, those were John's marching orders. Those are the reason that, that John came into the world. It was to bear witness, to testify about Jesus. And he was to testify about Jesus for a specific purpose, that all might believe in Jesus. That was the point of all that he said and all that he did was to point people to Jesus so they would see Jesus and they would then believe in Jesus and could be saved by Jesus. Now, John's mission then, is our mission today. Right? Nothing really has changed. We testify about Jesus so people can believe in Jesus. Right? This is what we are here to do. Right? When we think about God's will and God's purpose for our lives, there are any number of things that go into that. But one thing that is always God's will for all of our lives is that we would testify about Jesus so that people can believe in Jesus. Right? I mean, this is, of all the things that we can do in this world, of all the things we can do as Christians, one of the things we will not be able to do in heaven is witness for Jesus Christ. We'll not be able to tell people about Jesus so they can believe in Jesus because there everyone will know Him, see Him, and worship Him already. So all of us, Regardless of our age, regardless of our skills, regardless of our confidence levels, regardless of anything else. A part of the reason we exist, a part of the reason God has given us life and breath and all things today. So that we can testify about Jesus so that people can believe in Jesus. And our testimony, it must be clear, it must be accurate, and it must be true. And there are three necessities that I think we see from John's testimony that will help us to be able to do this. Number one, understand the role of law and grace. Right? We see again in verse 15, John bore witness of Jesus. Um, just over and over throughout this passage, that's what John does. He bears witness about Jesus. He explains kind of in uh, the... the the gospel writer John explains in verse 15 why Jesus is significant. And of his fullness we have received grace for grace. And the idea of grace for grace, it could also be translated, I guess, as grace upon grace. And the idea is that there has been grace given to us over and over again. As believers in Jesus Christ, there is grace given to us for all of our needs, for all of our concerns, for all the things that come into our life. We are given grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, mercy upon mercy in our life. And then... The apostle writes, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in this, he's contrasting and he's comparing Moses 
and Jesus. Right? And what he's doing is he's giving us the understanding of the law. And keep in mind, in the Jewish world, which was the majority of Christians at the time that John wrote, they understood mostly all things in light of the law. Right? Judaizers were a big problem. Judaizers initially were not necessarily false teachers. Judaizers were not necessarily people that just wanted to bring people under bondage. They were people that had devoted themselves to God's law. They were people that had devoted themselves to the Old Testament. And when it came to Jesus Christ and serving Him, they understood the law still being the defining point of it all. And so John, as he's writing about Jesus and writing about John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, he compares and he explains that there's a difference between law and grace. And I want to take a minute and explain that we can understand it. Because if we're going to, to accurately tell people about Jesus, to testify about Jesus, we've got to understand the difference and the role of law and grace. So first, the law reveals our sin. Right, the law reveals our sin. One of the common misconceptions about evangelism, about testifying for Jesus, or one of the things I've seen that, that is done wrong, is that evangelism becomes, we go and we tell people, don't do this or do that. Right, evangelism is going out and telling people, don't do this or start doing that. Now, that is not evangelism. That, that is the law. And the law cannot save. The law cannot change us. The law cannot help us. The law simply reveals our sin. And that's what Paul would write about later. Now, we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Now, that idea that all the world may become guilty before God, that is a key part of what the law does and why the law exists. As we tell people the good news about Jesus, usually we have to start with the bad news about sin. Right? The fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as we go out and begin to tell people about their need for Jesus Christ, a common response is for them to say they, they're all right. Right? And usually the way people will testify to the fact that they're all right is by pointing to someone that they are better than. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than Bob in the office. Bob is the sorriest Muldoon I have ever known. I am better than Bob. So I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that, so I should be okay. Now, there's a lot about that that could be true. Bob really might be the sorriest Muldoon that you have ever known. He might be the sorriest person in nine counties. The problem with that, though, is that Bob is not the standard. Bob is not the standard by which anyone will be measured by. Gosh, even Bob won't be measured by Bob's standard. Right? The standard that we're going to be measured by to determine sin and guilt and whether or not we need Jesus is God's standard. And God's standard is perfect, and God's standard is given to us, and God's standard is unshifting, and that standard basically would be the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are given that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world become guilty in the eyes of God. Right, so let's say you're talking to this person who's comparing themselves to Bob and explaining why they're so good. Why they really don't need Jesus. They're not perfect, but they really don't need what you're talking about. So you begin to, to show them the law. Have you ever told a lie? Well, 
yeah, I suppose I have. Now, the Bible says, bear not false witness. Have you ever had a lustful thought about someone that wasn't your spouse? Well, I mean, who hasn't? The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. Jesus takes that. And he said that if you have a lustful thought, it's as if you've committed adultery in your heart. And then you show the Ten Commandments and you begin to show them. Here's what the law says. Have you kept this standard? Have you made this standard and kept it perfectly? Well, of course, anyone who's honest would say no. Obviously, I have not kept this standard. Obviously, I have not kept it. Right? And because when we talk about keeping the law, things that are important to understand about it is that the law is a pass or fail test. Right? I mean, it is either you pass it with a hundred or you fail it even if you score a ninety. Right? There is no grading on the curve. There is no almost. It's either you pass with a perfect score or you fail regardless of your score. That, that's it. And the perfect score of the law, it's not that on a good day, right, I had a really good day, and on that day I didn't covet, and on that day I didn't take God's name in vain, and on that day I remembered the Sabbath, and on that day I, I honored the Lord first in my life, and on that day I didn't lie, on that day I didn't steal, on that day I didn't murder, not even in my heart or with my attitudes or commit adultery or lust in my heart. Keep the law to pass it is from the day that we're born to the day that we die, we perfectly keep the law. We keep all Ten Commandments, the, the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, perfectly. Never, never once slip up. Well, when we understand the law in that way, what we see is that we become guilty before God. right? And, and it stops our mouth. It stops us from saying, well, I'm not that bad. It stops us from saying, well, I don't necessarily need the Jesus you're talking about. It stops us. And it says, yes, I am guilty. And it says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, right? Because since the law can't make us righteous, since all the law can do is make us guilty and stop our mouths, there shall, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, what that means is nobody will ever be good enough on their own to go to heaven. Right? There will never be a person who has lived in this life who stands before God in judgment and God says, you're a pretty good old boy. You did an outstanding job on your own. Come on in here. It's not going to happen. Right? Because the law cannot make us righteous. The law is a standard we cannot keep. Once we have violated the standard, it sets up a, a system in which we cannot fix the things that we have done wrong. So all the law does is give us the knowledge sin. So as we go out and we begin to testify about Jesus, let's understand the role of the law. It is important in evangelism. It is important to explain to people that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong and all of us have indeed violated that standard. But let's not stop there because the law doesn't fix anything. Evangelism is not go out, you've sinned, stop it. Do better tomorrow and you'll be okay. That is not testifying about Jesus. That does not save anyone. The law reveals sin, but grace covers our sin. See, the law is the bad news. The grace is the good news. The law makes our sin evident. The grace covers our sin and gives us salvation. Look at what Paul would say in Ephesians. He said, And you... We're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course 
of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have time to go into all of that, but there's several things I want to point out. First, the law reveals our sin, but sin has consequences. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? Paul writing to the Ephesians is making, to them, making known to them the reason they need grace. He makes known to them the reason that they need Jesus Christ. That is, they are dead in trespasses and sin. Sin kills us. Right? It kills us spiritually. It separates us from God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they died spiritually at that point. And the spiritual part of person is the part of the person that can know God, can love God, can communicate with God and experience God. And all of us are born spiritually dead. We are born separated from God. We are born resistant to the rule of God. That is, our sinful nature is at work in us, controlling us, and it's leading us in a particular way. Right? And he calls that those who live that way are the sons of disobedience. But notice what he says after that. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And what Paul does is he goes from the specific, here's what you guys were like. But he doesn't want them to say, Paul, you're trying to act like you're better than us. He says, here's what we were all like. We were all at one point sons of disobedience. We all lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Right? And, and what we did was we just did whatever we wanted to do. Right? Living out the passion of the desires of the mind, that doesn't necessarily mean that we lived vile, wicked, sinful lives. Right? The very basics of what it means is that we lived how we wanted to live. Right? We didn't care what God said. Now, we may not have been antagonistic towards God. We may not have said, I hate God and I'm going to do my own thing. But we just did what we wanted to do. We lived the way that we wanted to live. If it felt good to us, we did it. We just did not concern ourselves with God's will, with God's want, and with God's standards. And because of that, it showed that we were dead in our sins, and it made us, by nature, the children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So, what is the natural state of man? In a close relationship with God, or in opposition to God? Headed towards heaven, or headed towards judgment? The natural state of all men, and all people, that they are separated from God, resistant to the rule of God, and not headed towards heaven. They are all headed towards the judgment of God. We are all, by our very nature, on our own, children of wrath. And if it stopped there, there would be law, there would be no grace, there would be no help, there would be no hope. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, while we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. Now, there's a difference between mercy and grace, although it's kind of a small difference. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Now, let's say your child sasses, right? Or you tell them to do something and they don't. You tell them not to do something and they do. What do they deserve? They deserve the consequences that you laid out would happen after that. Now, if for some reason... You just said, I'm not going to do that. That's mercy. 
You gave them what they did not deserve. If, after they did that, you said, I'm going to take you to get ice cream and a Coke. It's grace. You're giving them what they do not deserve. Right? And what we have is we have received both mercy and grace. God has not given us what we deserve. The wrath of God. The judgment. The punishment of God. And He has given us what we do not deserve. He has given us eternal life. He has seated us with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. He has shown His immeasurable riches of His grace on us through Jesus. You see, grace, grace covers our sin. Grace says, yes, you've sinned. And yes, you're guilty. And yes, it's bad. And yes, you deserve the absolute judgment of God. But there's good news. God has something better in store for you. God has something better that He will give you. He will save you from the wrath to come. He will give you life where death once reigned. He will give you a relationship with Him. He will help you. He will enable you. He will strengthen you. He will be with you. And when this world is over, He will take you to be where He is now. It's grace. Grace is the good news part of testifying about Jesus. And what we have to do, if we go and we testify about Jesus, we have to use law and grace. It's not one or the other. It it is both. Because without the law, no one understands their need for grace. I mean, just to walk up to somebody and say, you need a Savior. You're going to hell and you need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. You need to repent and believe. That doesn't make any sense to them. Why do I need a Savior? What have I done? What am I being saved from? No concept, no clue. But if you just walk up to someone and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, what's that? What does that do for them? Why wouldn't God love me? Everybody loves me. I'm a pretty good old boy. Right? Why wouldn't? I'm glad God has a wonderful plan for my life. I've got a wonderful plan for my own life. It takes law and grace to get someone to Jesus. Right? A, a way to do it is that you do law to the proud, grace to the humble. I mean, think about the way Jesus did things. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He is pretty proud of himself. He's pretty puffed up. What do I do that I may that I may get eternal life? Jesus said, "Keep the commandments." Which ones? Love your father or love your father and mother. Do this. I, I've done all those since I was a child. And Jesus said, "One thing you lack. Sell all that you have. Give your possessions to the poor. Follow me, and I'll give you true riches." Right? That's a law. Jesus was hitting him with the law. The law of shall have no other gods before me. The man couldn't handle it, and so he walked away. Then think about the woman caught in the act of adultery. She's already caught in the act of adultery. She's there ready to be stoned. But what did Jesus do to her? Did Jesus then turn to her and say, have you ever committed lust in your heart? Have you ever cheated on your spouse? No. What did he do? He said, where are those that condemn you? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Those that are already broke down, that are aware of their sin and struggling under the weight of their sin, they don't need us to pile on. What they need is for us to give them the grace that they need. But those that are proud and puffed up and think they're great, they don't need us to reaffirm their greatness. They need us to give them the law so they can see their desperate need for Jesus Christ and the grace that he gives. If we're going to testify about Jesus, and we're going to give a testimony that's clear and accurate and truthful, and we're giving this testimony for the purpose 
they would believe in Jesus and be saved by Jesus. We must understand the role of law and grace. Secondly, emphasize Jesus and not yourself. An important thing to understand as we go out to testify about Jesus is that we are not saviors. And we are not savers. We are, as witnesses for Jesus Christ, people who testify about Jesus, we are an important part of the process that God uses to save the lost. Never underestimate that. Never underestimate the importance of what we do in testifying about Jesus. But at the same time, never overestimate the importance of what we do in testifying about Jesus. We are important, but we are not the part that is most important. Jesus is most important. As the church, we are called the body of Christ, but we are never Christ himself. Jesus alone is Savior. Jesus alone saves. And when we don't understand that role that we have in there, the the proper role that we have, there are one of two mistakes that we make. One is we think too much of ourselves. We think too much of ourselves. And so in our evangelism, in our testifying about Jesus, we're a lot more likely to testify about ourselves. We're a lot more likely to testify about what we do and how we've changed and what we've done. But we're not the point. Jesus is. Now, John the Baptist is a great example of how to deal with this. Right? Because John was kind of a big deal. Right? John came from nowhere. Went out to the wilderness where nobody was. Dressed in a weird way. Eating weird food. Preaching hard. Right? John wasn't out there telling everybody how to have their best life now. Right? John was out in the wilderness preaching, repent. God's going to judge you. God is going to cut down the, the tree and cast you into fire. And despite the fact that John was weird and he preached hard, people came. They, they, they came from all over the place to hear what John had to say. They went out there and they listened to him. And as he preached, they, they were broken in repentance. They went to the water and they let him baptize them to reaffirm their commitment to God. And the people that went to hear him were, were sinners. I mean, there were tax collectors and prostitutes and, and the worst sort of people. Even soldiers were going out to hear John and saying, what do I do to live for your God? The religious leaders came to hear what John had to say. Now, they didn't necessarily like him. They were interested in him. He was was causing a stir. John was kind of a big deal. And it would be hard. It would be easy for John to begin to think that this was John. This was the world according to John. That his job, it was all because of him that all this was happening. That's not what John did. John did not let all of this go to his head. Now look at verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Nope. They said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. 
as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is, prepared, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Beth Arba, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Notice that John deflected the, the credit. Right? Are you the one that we're waiting for? No. Are you really significant? No. Who are you? I'm just a dude out here testifying about the Messiah to come. The Bible said would happen. I'm just doing what God wants me to do. Well, then why are you baptizing? There's coming one later. He's the one that it's all about. Right? John's testimony is never really about John. What we know about John, other people told us. John's sermons weren't about John. John's testimony wasn't about John. Jesus was always the focus. John knew what his mission was. It was to testify about Jesus. It was not to tell the world the greatness of John. It was not to tell the world the sacrifices of John. It was not to tell the world the mission of John. It was to tell people about Jesus. He was the focus. He was the point. John did not think too much of himself. This is a great example for us to follow. I think of another one that's an example like this would be Billy Graham. Billy Graham, I mean, Billy Graham's kind of a big deal too. In modern times, I doubt there are as many people, or many people who have preached to as many people as he has. I doubt there are many people that have as many professed salvations under their ministry as Billy Graham has. But you don't read a lot about Billy Graham talking about Billy Graham. I mean, if you've ever watched Billy Graham preach, he doesn't talk about the glory of Billy. He talks about Jesus. He talks about the cross. And he talks about the resurrection. And if you read an interview with Billy where they try to, to, to hone in on him, how did you do what you did? What made you so successful? Jesus. The Holy Spirit. I just preached the Bible. I mean, Billy... It's never the point of anything he says, anything he writes, anything he does. Billy emphasizes Jesus and not himself. He does not think too much about himself. We have to be careful of that as well. We are not the point. Jesus is. Secondly, though, not only do we not want to think too much about ourselves, we've got to be careful to, not to think too little about ourselves. See, one of the things I think many of us struggle with, one of the things that keeps us from testifying about Jesus is we feel inadequate. Right? Because, I mean, Billy Graham, I mean, he's like perfect almost, right? But me, I struggle with doubts. I struggle with fears. I know my temptations. I know my failures. I know who I am far better than anyone else does. Who am I to tell anyone else about Jesus when I haven't even got this whole thing licked? I mean, do any of you compare your life to what the Christian is supposed to be and think, I obviously stink at this. I don't guess I understand the basic concepts. And I do. There's times where I just think, man, why would anybody listen to anything I have to say? I'm a moron. I don't understand. 
a failure. Chances are, at various times, we all feel that way. For one reason or another, we feel inadequate. There's no way God could use me to do anything of any value. There's no way God could use me to save a person, to change a life. We think too little about ourselves. But again, it comes back to the idea that we're not the point. Jesus is. And I love this passage. This is one of my very favorite passages. When I feel like giving up on it all, this is one I look at. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in on them. But again, we see the, the condition of those who reject the gospel. Those who don't believe the gospel don't believe because it's veiled to them. And they're perishing. They're headed towards judgment. Satan is working in their minds to keep them blinded, to keep them from believing. Right? And he does all sorts of things to keep them blinded. He, for one group of people, he'll make them think they're too sinful to be saved. For one group of people, he'll make them think they're too good to need salvation. For one group of people, he'll show them all the church people that are hypocrites and say that there's nothing real to it. For one group of people, he'll make them think they're too smart to believe the Bible. For another group of people, he'll make them believe that if all religions, really, if there's all these religions, surely they would all be equally true. Or whatever. Satan will do whatever he can to work all kinds of ways, to work in people's minds, to keep them blinded to the truth. And that's the, that's the key. That's what they need. Uh, He keeps the the light of the gospel from shining into them that they would believe. But notice what we do. That's the opposition. That's the world we live in. As we testify about Jesus to people, that is their condition. But we don't preach ourselves. That's the key. When we go out to talk to people and testify about Jesus, it's Jesus that we're testifying about, not not us. We're just servants for Jesus' sake. Because it's God who commands the light to shine in the darkness. And it's God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? See, it's God that saves. Right? When, when you were lost, your, the gospel was veiled to you, your mind was blinded, and, and you didn't understand the glory of the gospel. But then somebody shared the gospel with you. Whether you heard a sermon preached, or somebody talked to you, or you listened to something on the radio, and in that moment, God commanded the light to shine into your your heart. And in that moment, for the first time probably, you understood who Jesus is, and what Jesus had done, and why that was significant to you. It was God that did it, not the person who shared the gospel with you. that That is the plan. God's plan for the salvation of the world is that believers would testify about Jesus to unbelievers. And that's the plan A. There is no plan B. There is no other way that it's going to happen. God is not going to write the gospel in the sky. Bushes are likely not going to burst into flames and testify the truth about Jesus Christ. We, the believers in Jesus Christ, are to go out and to tell people about Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't seem like the greatest plan of all, does it? Right? Because God, if God can really do anything, I mean, if He can make a donkey talk, if He can make a bush burst into flames and a voice come out from underneath it, if He can do all the things that the Bible says, why not do something a little more spectacular than me 
going and talking to you? Or you going talking to someone else? Why does God do such an ordinary thing? Well, the answer is given there. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. Now, I like this part because it's encouraging, but it's also a bit humbling. Earthen vessel, basically, I mean, to put it in best modern terms, it's just like a trash can. Like nothing special, nothing fancy. Just kind of a regular jar of clay that you would put trash in. So there's a treasure that's put in the jar, the trash can. Now, what I want to do is I would like to say I'm the treasure. <laughs> I'm kind of a treasure, I think. But sadly, that's not what, what Paul is talking about. Treasure is the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ. The jar of clay, the trash can. That's us. We're the ordinary thing in the process. The treasure is the gospel. The ordinary jar of clay. Nothing special. That's us. Now, I'll be honest with you. I like to say that I'm a treasure, but deep down I know I'm really nothing special. I'm just a, a jar of clay. Broken, flawed, fallible. So, so messed up at times. But it, it's, it's me. That way, you that way, that God has chosen to put the treasure of the gospel in. Why? So that the excellency of the power may be of God and not us. You know that if, if we didn't recognize how flawed we were and we told somebody about Jesus and they believed in Jesus, what would we do? We'd be like, look at what I did, wouldn't we? Look at how good I am. I'm so smart, I argued them right into the kingdom. I convinced them to, to buy Jesus. I, I talked them into it. But when we stutter and stammer our way through a testimony about Jesus Christ, despite our flaws and our failures and our fears and our doubts, and they say, oh, I, do need, I, want, I want what you have. And all we can do is just sit back and say, that was God. God did that, not me. That's the point. See, God wants to work in our lives. God wants us to bring glory and honor to His name. And one of the greatest ways that we can bring glory and honor to His name is to be so aware of our flaws and our failures and the fact that we are just jars of clay. And then to step out of our comfort zone and to tell somebody about something great and wonderful and watch God work through us to change their lives and make a difference in them for all of eternity. God gets great glory in that. That's what he wants. That's why it's God's plan A. So that he would get all the glory. So that all the power and all of the, the recognition would go to him. Look at what God has done. And as we go to tell people about Jesus, testify about him, we don't want to think too much of ourselves. We're not the point. At the same time, we don't want to think too little of ourselves to think we're inadequate and we're incapable of sharing the gospel. God never used a perfect person other than Jesus Christ. I mean, you just if you've ever read the Bible, you know the people of the Bible were flawed. Right? Abraham, the father of faith, doubted at times. Moses, the hero of Egypt, had anger management problems. Elijah gave in to discouragement and asked God just to kill him. Uh, uh, Isaiah, at one point, thought his life was useless and he had wasted his time. Peter Ran off at the mouth. John was really young. All of the apostles fled when Jesus was arrested. Paul was a zealot that had killed people in the name of his God and his religion. 
They were all people that God could use. They were ordinary jars of clay, as are you, as am I. Don't think too little of ourselves. God can certainly use us. The point is Jesus. Power is Jesus. The Savior is Jesus. We're just the conduit through which He works. So first, focus on the person... Or fo- <laughs> Understand the role of law and grace. Emphasize Jesus, not yourself. Then finally, focus on the person and work of Jesus. Right, since Jesus is the point, we need to understand... What about Jesus we need to talk about? If we're going to emphasize him, what do we emphasize? Well, first, John tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the Lamb of God is a pretty significant phrase in the Bible. It's a pretty important picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Historically, the Lamb of God points us back to the story of Exodus. Remember the story. God is ready to bring out the people of Israel from uh, Egyptian slavery. He has done all kinds of plagues and judgment on the gods and upon the people of Egypt. And he's going to bring about the one great final judgment. He is going to kill the firstborn of all of the land of Egypt. And God is going to go through all of Egypt and kill the firstborn in every home and every land and every person there. There's only one way to be spared. That is to, to kill a lamb, take its blood, to put it on the doorpost. And as the, and the death angel would come through, he would see the blood on the doorpost. He would then pass over that house. And their firstborn would be spared. Now, obviously, that's the historical part. Symbolically, that pointed to Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God who shed blood, covers our sin, and causes us to be passed over from the judgment and the wrath of God. Jesus came, in part, to fulfill all of the Old Testament. Right? He, he did all of the things that the law demanded. Jesus fulfilled the moral requirements of the law. Where we fail in keeping the Ten Commandments, Jesus kept them perfectly, always. He kept the letter of the law. He kept the spirit of the law, never once even coming close to violating them. But the Bible also has, the law also had a ceremonial or a sacrificial aspect to it. And this was the part where the lambs were slain. This was the part where things were killed. And over and over again, these things were killed to remind them that the wages of sin is death. That what they had done in their violation of the Ten Commandments, it required something to die. Jesus, because he kept the moral law perfectly, he was able to fulfill the sacrificial law vicariously. In other words, he took that punishment in our place. He took what we deserve because the wages of our sin was death. What we deserve was the punishment of the cross, the death and the penalty that goes along with sin. But as Jesus died upon the cross, he was fulfilling the sacrificial aspects of the law. And all of God's wrath against all of our sin was poured out upon him there and was taken away. And therefore, the law has been fulfilled. And now you and I, we can receive the grace that I spoke about earlier. We can have the punishment taken away. It's not that God says we're not that bad. And it's not that God says we weren't really that guilty. We really were that guilty. We really were that bad. It's God saying the punishment has been paid. Jesus took it in your place. So as we go and we begin to testify about Jesus, we always have to talk about what he did 
on the cross. It's not enough to talk about Jesus as a teacher. It's not enough to talk about Jesus as a humanitarian or as someone who did miracles. All of those things are only significant in light of the cross. The cross is the point of his very life. He came to die for our sins that we could be saved from the wrath to come. And we have not accurately, clearly, or truthfully testified about Jesus if we have not talked about his death on the cross for the sins of the world. But Jesus is not only the Lamb of God, Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 38, 34, I'm sorry. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John was given a a picture. He didn't even know who Jesus was going to be, who the Messiah was going to be until he saw him. God the Father told him, when you go, you're going to see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, land on this person. When you see them, that is my anointed one. That is my chosen one. He saw Jesus, and this happened to him, and so he knew Jesus was, and he testified, the Son of God. Now, we have talked a lot about Jesus being God in recent weeks, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in there. But it is the repeated testimony of Jesus himself, and of those who under who heard him, he was the Son of God. Even those who did not like Jesus, they heard him say things. And they took up stones to kill him because they understood he was the Son of God. But how can we be sure Jesus was the Son of God? Is there anything that he did that proves he was the Son of God? I mean, after all, we just talked about Jesus being the Lamb of God. He died an awful death. I mean, how can God die? But, I mean, is really the point of it all? This guy would live and then die a humiliating and painful and awful death on the cross. Is there anything in that that testifies that he is the Son of God, who is also the Lamb of God? There is. It's his resurrection. That's what the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets, the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It was all about Jesus in the Old Testament. He was declared to be the Son of God through His resurrection from the dead. That is, His resurrection is extremely critical to understanding who He is and what He did. Right? Because apart from the resurrection, Jesus is really nothing special. And the Romans killed lots of people. They crucified lots of folks. They crucified lots of Jews. During the time that they ruled over Judea. What makes Jesus different? How is he different than anyone else that got on the wrong side of somebody and ended up on a Roman cross? He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead in his resurrection. That is the great proof that he is the Son of God who died as the Lamb of God. That is the great proof that all that he said was true. And that he can do all the things he promised to do. The resurrection is key. He is the Son of God, and we know He's the Son of God because He rose from the dead. That is, that, that is the one great, most important proof there is. If we're going to testify about Jesus, we have to testify His person and His work, who He is. He's the Son of God, what He did. He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again to declare that He was the Son of God. He died as the Lamb of God. It's not enough to say he was a good man. It's not enough to say he was a good teacher. It's not enough to say he was real. We have to testify he is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. Those are essential testimonies to who he is. If we want to testify about him in a way that will help people believe in him and be saved by him. These are the things 
if we're going to testify about Jesus that we have to do. We have to understand the law and grace. Balance them properly. Explain them clearly. Use them in the right manner. We have to emphasize Jesus and not ourselves. We're not the point that we talk about ourselves. And we're not the point that we keep ourselves from being used of God. And as we emphasize Jesus, we must focus on who He is and what He's done. We have to explain those things clearly, accurately, truthfully. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.